You're listening to Irish Radio Canada's Women Abroad, and I'm honoured to sit across from Emma Donoghue. Uh, Emma is in Ottawa and uh, has been participating at the Writers' Festival and is about to uh, engage at a screening of her movie, Room, also. And I, Emma, thanks a million, first of all, for agreeing to have a chat. Oh, my pleasure. Um, we can, there's so much ground to cover, but uh, you are the youngest of a family of eight, I'm the youngest of a family of six. Being, the, being in a large family, did that straight off, did that provide you with material for life, for writing? It absolutely did, and it taught me to find my voice, because it, it was like competitive debating, trying to get a word in edgeways around our table. And my, my dad's a well-known professor and literary critic, and so between him and my mum and the eight of us, um, it was conversationally very busy, shall we say, and... Um, I, I find I have no fear of crowds now, you know. <laughs> I can hold my own in any noisy group. You grew up in Dublin, south side. Yeah. Dublin 4. Not quite Dublin 4, <laughs> no, that was more snobby. We were <laughs> County Dublin, just south of oh, it. <laughs> okay, okay. But and one of the liberations of moving to Canada was that people don't associate your accent with quite such a specific class uh, demographic. <laughs> when you talk about accent and such a class demographic, actually, does that in any way influence you in your characters and the rec- how we... Well, I'm certainly very interested in class. I mean, in my new novel, Akin, basically it's a cross-class friendship story in that it's two New York guys. One of them is a 79-year-old retired professor, and one of them is a kid who's been living with his grandmother on food stamps in the last unreconstructed bit of Brooklyn so they live in the same city but it's different worlds because one of them is very middle class so when for instance the boy visits the Upper West Side the the posh guy's apartment and he sees balloons attached to a door he assumes there's been a murder there it's a memorial whereas the old man assumes there's been a birthday party there so yeah I'm fascinated by these subtle class distinctions and I've written a lot of historical fiction where again you're always sort of reading the clothes and behaviour of people for these you know rather invidious distinctions between people and growing up in Dublin, in and around Mount Merion, uh, in that area, like you don't have to go too far in any part of Dublin to find class differences. No, indeed, that's true. And um, that's something I suppose I've really come to like about Canada is that by contrast, there's, there's far less of that. I mean, of course, they're still rich and poor, but there isn't quite the categorization that you would get in both Ireland, where I grew up, and then England, where I lived for eight years as well. And you had the wonderful experience of a, a nun's education. Indeed, I have to say, even though I resented it, you know, they, they, they ran a tight ship, and so I enjoyed my school days very much. Yeah. Now, and I notice nun characters keep coming up in what I write, you know. <laughs> I, I noticed one thing that I found intriguing, and that was you said that, you know, you attended Catholic schools uh, in Dublin, apart from an eye-opening year in New York at the age of 10. Yeah, my dad got a job at NYU, and he took, he and my mom decided to go there for a year and bring just the three youngest, because the others were grown up. So suddenly I was finding myself in this school in um, Greenwich Village with people who didn't look like me and divorced people. You know, I mean, their, their parents were sometimes divorced and I was offered, you know, cannabis on my first day. So New York just blew my mind. You know, everything was, was noisy and brightly coloured, you know, with the watermelons and the, um, the, the blaring taxis. You know, it was just such a wake-up. So I rem- my, my childhood memories are all sort of pre-New York, New York, and then post-New York. So then going back after that, after a year in New York and having that type of an explosive experience, 
Was it easy or hard setting back down? It was fine setting back down, but I think the New York year made me permanently a bit, you know, North American, like, you know, right. um, um, speaking up for myself and so on. Um, I, it made me probably less meek, more willing to stand up to the nuns. And it's probably no accident that I then settled in Canada, you know, that I, I, I didn't ultimately find Ireland quite, quite a comfortable fit. So I go back all the time. I'm still very connected to Ireland, and I've worked with an Irish film company quite often. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in that as well, because my father moved around, and I found that, and actually our, my first move was when I was 10. Um, and then 12. Yeah. And yeah. I found actually um, when you went back at, at 11, were you going still in national school or were you going? Yeah, no, I was going back into the same national school. Yeah, I think so. I think it just made me a bit droppier, a bit louder. Right. right. <laughs> a little and bit on Irish. So would you say then that also it would have coloured how you looked at the world from the point of view of saying, I can interpret or I can read or I can analyse because I have a different baseline now than the rest of the people around about me. Well, I think emigration is so helpful to writers because it, 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 it sharpens that outsider's perspective. It means in particular you can see social rules for the arbitrary invented things they are. So, you know, once I remember getting into ridiculous trouble in New York, I tried to throw away this hideous craft project of mine. It was an Inuit drying rack for seal and I stuffed it into what I thought was a bin and somebody, a stranger on the street gave me hell for it and it turned out it was a post box. So I had, you know, misread that, that the architecture of the streets, even right. though, you know, I was an English-speaking kid, but I, I couldn't read the objects on the street the same way. Right. So I think that kind of experience really helped make me a writer. And I notice, you know, now in a, in a novel like a kin, I'm, I'm constantly sort of fussing over these tiny little social distinctions or misunderstandings of phrasing or mistranslations. Yes, the minutiae of social life. I think there's nothing like emigration for making you realize, you know, how there are still differences between countries. And I suppose that then would also highlight how limiting in many ways for somebody who has never experienced anything else and challenging it is to try to interact with somebody who has the broader perspective. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the funny thing about Ireland is it's a small island, but because it is a small island, we have traditionally got off it very frequently. So Irish people are always, you know, whizzing off to America for the summer, that kind of thing. So actually, we don't tend to be as, as parochial as, say, some Americans who never get passports. And yet there would be an accusation that the Irish can be quite parochial. But you're right, and I would have to agree that I think the Irish probably have a better understanding of world affairs, current affairs, than even Canadians. It, it could be because we're a small nation, so we've had to go abroad, and you know, to get to get jobs, we've had to go abroad. Yeah. So, to talk about the movie that's coming up, and we're, we'll talk a little about the again as well. You've mentioned it, but the movie that's coming up, Room. Um, what drew you, first of all, to the story, and then, given how you reach into your being to find characters, develop characters, and let those characters take life? How were you able to bring yourself into the character in the room to make it as life as real uh, as it was? Because you you couldn't have drawn on your own experiences. Well, I did really though, because actually it's a story all about parenting. You know, it's about that claustrophobic little magical circle of of you and the baby. 
Um, and of course I intensified it I tried to imagine a, a, a room in which this young woman had no one to talk to about her baby and how close they would get um, but it was really all based on those intense feelings of parenthood and, and, and the feeling of on the one hand yes I love being with my child this is all great fun and on the other hand get me out of here you know so the, the mingled claustrophobia and magic of parenting I just gave it a kind of a, a crime frame as it were mm-hmm. but I think that the, the deep story the deep emotions that that story taps into are those to do with an adult looking after a child and so that's why I get really moving fan letters from say a grandfather talking about his grandchild or teachers who worked with kids with disabilities you know and all sorts of people who have some kind of intense connection adult to child or even people remembering their own childhoods so it's really not a crime story and I think that's why the the film as well as the book worked so well and making the film was just a, a model experience of how it should work because I didn't like sell it for the money I waited till the right people came along mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the right people turned out to be an Irish company element and in particular Lenny Abramson our wonderful director mm-hmm. and you know usually the Hollywood way is to say like oh let's have our agents meet and discuss possibilities Lenny just wrote me a 10 page letter in which he laid it all out how how he would turn it into a film it was mm-hmm. so honest mm-hmm. and I thought he sounded like he absolutely understood the book and how to make a beautiful film of it so mm-hmm. he and I worked really closely together and it was an Irish Canadian film um, mm-hmm. I think we were allowed what was it one and a half American actors <laughs> we were allowed Brie Larson and um, no we were allowed two Americans and uh, a cameo role that's right we got William H. Macy as our cameo role and the mother and grandmother were Americans and then we luckily found a superb Canadian actor as our child Jacob Tremblay mm-hmm. um, who we take a great pride in now you know, I'm watching his career as he gets older right. so you know making a film with my two home countries um, was just amazing and to see you know the best of these two uh, you know, not huge film industries working together very cooperatively and then getting all the way to the Oscars couldn't have been more pleasurable. And taking, as you said, that uh, rather than it being Hollywooded. Really wasn't. It's very much the, the European yeah. model of filming where you have the, the director making all the key decisions and that saves it from being filmmaking by committee, you know? Yeah. So um, you're the youngest of eight. Uh, you have how many kids of your own? Two. Two. Tiny family. It's like, well, yeah, we're, I'm the youngest of six and <laughs> we have two. Um, I'm sure your kids' experience of you as a mother, uh, are they as children of you as a mother, is probably very different than yours was. And I think they get a lot more individual hands-on attention than my parents could possibly have done, given the age of us. But, but it doesn't make me better. <laughs> no, no. But would you say that the way your children can interact with you that you would have been able to do that with your parents no they're way more disrespectful they call me Emma for instance there's a lot of mockery there's very little respect I would say my parents were extremely warm to me but still you know it was it was 1970s warm it wasn't 2010s warm so there was just I'm way more frank with my kids I answer all their questions probably with a lot more information than they wanted Um, so the style of parenting has changed but I mean the fundamentals of like you feed them their dinner and you hug them. You know the fundamentals are the same. That's if you got hugged when you because again <laughs> right. no because again no Ireland in the forties fifties children didn't necessarily get hugged. Yeah yeah no I would say I got plenty of hugging. Yeah. It's just that there was more there was a bit more verbal reticence. Yeah. You know, so like, do they now influence your writing? Because I asked you you know being the youngest of eight yeah. and that. Do your children oh, know? Uh, the single biggest influence in my writing is my kids, actually. Yeah, like this, the latest novel, Akin, is absolutely full of details I've got from my son. Everything to do with, you know, everything from games he plays at school, like playground games, um, you know, bad jokes, uh, rude jokes, uh, his particular 
curse words. I've watched him playing video games and I've jotted down the stuff he and his friends would say. Um, that you know, the, the boy in the book, his taste in music and shoes and everything. You know, I, I directly used my son as a kind of researcher into use so for all in, that. In doing that, your son is Canadian. Right? Yes. And yes. What we talked about a little earlier was the difficulty that you experienced in New York was you didn't understand the landscape. So when you listen to your kids and you absorb their phraseology, are you then challenged with saying, how do I relate this that it's colloquial meaning can now translate. Well, you, you have to check, you know, that he's not, if he's, if he's using some Canadian-specific word, obviously I don't apply that, say, to an American character, but a lot of youth culture is fairly international. Mm -hmm. They all know who Beyoncé is. Mm -hmm. You know, so his, his, you know, role models or people he admire, they wouldn't be that different from an American boy. Right, right. Um, there's, a, there's a huge amount of kind of, you know, internet culture rather than a nationally specific culture. Um, I was asked to ask you, because I know you're going to the they move you over. What led you to the decision to adapt your own work or adapt your own work and was it difficult being so close to the source material? No, because you see, I have a, I started in theatre and I have a real relish for the different forms of drama. You know, I love radio drama, screenplay writing, theatre. And so to me, it's great fun to take a story and totally recast it and tell it differently. So I knew that um, the novel, for instance, is on the boy's head. So it's entirely his point of view. But as soon as you show him and his mother interacting, it's already a two-hander. It's not right. just in his head. Right. So I, I have an actual relish for that kind of thing. I like the process of saying what changes about the story and what stays the same when you tell it in a different form. I mean, film is made of you know, light and faces. It's, it's not made of words in the same way. So, um, no, I found it a really interesting project and I didn't consider letting anyone else do it. I just went ahead and wrote the screenplay myself right. before the book actually came out. You know, in yeah. that year of waiting for it to be published, I thought, now's a good time to write the screenplay. It must be horrendous for a writer I mean, to, to have their work taken and... Um, Garbled. Butchered, like. <laughs> and then they have to sit and look at it. I agree, but remember, they have often signed over the rights for the know, money, right? I know, I know, I know. I got Hollywood offers too, but I, I did know. not want to sell it to any of them. Right. You know, because I could, I could smell that it was going to be a bad film if I... Now, one of the did things you did, you did mention as well was that when you do finish, you're already on to the next one, even though it may take a year from the end product as you see it to becoming an end product as we see it. Yeah, yeah. So you no, are... There's a continuous flow of tasks, and there's always a few tasks at the same time. So yeah. how many tasks are going on at the moment? Oh, I'd have five different screen projects. Um, I'd be working on the next novel, and detailed notes taken for two novels after that. And then I'll suddenly get attacked by a new idea. I'm like, hang on lads, hang on, when will I raise this one? <laughs> so actually my problem is too many ideas. So your challenge is the same as a lot of papers. They're trying to find time to read the books and you're trying to find Absolutely. the time to write them. On an airplane, if, if, if I'm ever caught in a bit of turbulence and I think we're about to crash, I'm like, no, I can't have too many books to write. <laughs> Emma, I'm going to wrap up and let you go because I know you have another engagement and I'm really appreciative that you were able to take the time and spend it with me. And this thank you very much. Fun. Thank, thank you. Thank you.